we're looking at a series of sermons at the moment uh, around the theme of, so what did you expect? And the idea was that we would look at different moments in our lives and the clash between expectations and reality and the way that those occasions actually become moments where we might learn what it means to be a disciple. And last week, if you were with us for our all-age worship, we looked at uh, work. What did you expect when you went to work? And today I want to kind of follow that thought on a little bit and talk about what did you expect when you were given more responsibilities in life? And um, I wondered whether to to do this, we could just begin by asking you to talk to someone else about what is the biggest responsibility at the moment that you are feeling. Does that make sense? What's the the responsibility that weighs most heavily upon you now? You want to find someone else who looks more intelligent than you and say, you go first and I'll listen. Um, That's probably the best way to deal with this. Um, But what is the greatest responsibility you are feeling this morning? Just quickly find someone and uh, tell them what you're thinking. Okay, let me, uh, let me ask if any of you would be willing enough just to say what you are feeling. What's, what are the greatest responsibilities? What's the, res- the, the thing you feel the greatest responsibility for at the moment, this morning as you're sitting in church? I'm just genuinely intrigued to know. Anybody going to talk to me? What's the greatest? Yeah. Children. Yeah, children. Okay, children at school, the children you're teaching and, and engage with at school. Someone else? Yeah. Okay. So the only Christian in a large family. Somebody else? So you're going to do this one differently, are you? <laughs> Good. So you've got a new boss, training residential, Tuesday, Wednesday, keen to get off onto a good, good start. Anybody else? What are the things that you... Okay. Being a Christian. Responsibilities. As you go on in life, you just seem, I think, you seem to collect more. Um, until you get sometimes to this sort of situation. I wonder if this picture uh, represents the feeling for some of us. Do any of you find yourself looking back with nostalgia on the days when you seem to have less responsibility or fewer responsibilities and go, they were good days? Or do you look forward to the days when you might feel you will have fewer responsibilities? It's happened, yeah, well... For some of us, we take that as a great promise. So here's the question. Why did you accept the responsibility? Or why were you given the responsibility? What happened? You were foolish. (laughs) What happened? 
It felt the right thing to do. Someone else said, sometimes you don't get a choice. Anything else? You wanted to make a difference. You get bored where you were, and so you, you kind of want to move on. Anything else? Okay, you'd rather do it yourself than let someone else do it because you kind of know you can do it. You, it'll happen. Yeah, sometimes you're promoted, aren't you? And the, and the, the, the carrot they dangle is esteem, money, position, a sense of achievement, doing something worthwhile. What's the cost? Time, pun energy, stress, pun sanity. <laughs> that's that's the price. That's the price. Now here we are in church and uh, worshiping together and coming together and because the other element for us with all of the same, you know, we receive, uh, we take on more responsibilities for the same reasons as all our other peers. Where it, it's, it's a work, you get to a certain stage. And you're offered promotion. You're in families and you take responsibility for those people that you uh, care for. It's the same as everybody else. But for those of us in church, there's another element. It's the God factor. Because pretty much more all of us would sense and we would probably, uh, if push comes to shove, want to say at some point we felt this was what God wanted for us. Now on the days when everything is going really well, that's a really easy thing to say. But on the days when you feel like you're up against it, that very sentence, I thought it was what God wanted, becomes almost an accusation against whoever can be pinned on. <laughs> it's kind of like a cry of, I thought this was what you wanted me to do. And particularly if you're tired or you feel overstretched or you feel that um, the payment is too high when you thought it was what God asked of you, it can become even more pronounced. I thought this is what you wanted, God, but look at me. How on earth can this be what you would have asked of me? And that's the question I want to explore with you today. And I suppose it's really two very simple questions. What's God up to? And what does he want of us? Little questions that we can solve within about 20 minutes. But in order to begin to explore the questions, let's read ourselves into a story, a story that's not our own life story, but another story of where God was at work. And let's see if we can hear in that story something of the way God might seem to work. And the story is from 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16. It'd be good if you've got a Bible uh, in front of you just to, to use it so you can follow that which I'm reading. Now, chapter 16 follows chapter 15. That's not very profound, but it's true. Chapter 15 um, is the story of Saul being a king. And Saul 
does as many kings do and did. Saul thinks he's in charge. So Saul oversteps the authority that he has. Samuel is a prophet. He's kind of a man that God has used to anoint Saul to be the king. He's the king maker. And if you see at the end of chapter 15, um, verse 35, until the day Samuel died, he didn't go and see Saul again. Though Samuel mourned for him. That's because Saul had made so many missteps. Samuel mourned for Saul. Listen to that, the next verse, which is kind of like one of these horrific verses in the Bible. And the Lord regretted that he'd made Saul king over Israel. That's a, that's a, a moment just to pause and go, wow, I would not. That's the last thing you'd ever want God to say over your life. So how do we get out of this situation? It's kind of like, if you didn't know chapter 16 was coming, and if you'd not read it before, it's like, this is as bad as it's going to get. Because the nation is failing. And the nation are God's people, and they're failing. And if the nation fails, then God's plan for the world fails. Through you, all nations will be blessed. But actually, if you decide we're not going to live for God anymore, then actually it's the world that feels that. So how's God going to deal with a situation like this? Well, he does it as he always does with newness. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I'm, I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. And when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height, height for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things human beings look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass in front of Samuel, but Samuel said, the Lord's not chosen this one either. Jesse then made Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord hasn't chosen these. So Samuel asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Mm, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We won't sit down until he arrives. I love that. So what you've got going on are seven brothers plus one father plus presumably females in the home all standing up waiting for David to be found on a hillside and brought in. Can you imagine the small talk? It's just a thought. It's not pertinent to this sermon, but I just was kind of intrigued by it. So he sent and he had him brought in. 
He was glowing with health, had a fine appearance and handsome features. The Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came on David in power. And Samuel went to Ramah. The big story here is this. God's really concerned about his world. And as a response, he gives someone a new job. That's the big story. God's really concerned about his world. And in response, he appoints someone to a new place of work. But underlying that big story, there's so much that is worth being reminded of. God does have a plan in the midst of the mess. And his plan is to redeem what is messed up. Saul does not have the last word on God's story. God has the last word on God's story. God has a plan, and his plan includes giving someone a new job. God's future is never determined by the present. God never stops working out his purposes, even in the bleakest of situations. So how does he do it? Well, he sends this prophet called Samuel. Now, I have it on good authority that this is exactly how Samuel looked. (laughs) Now, it's kind of intriguing because when I saw that film, Lord of the Rings, and I saw this character, Gandalf, I knew that that was Samuel because I've read this passage since I've been a little boy, and that's always how Samuel's looked. Big, long, white beard, big, long, white robes, long, white hair, with a kind of kindly but piercing blue eyes that would see right through you. I have no doubt that's what Samuel looks like. And Samuel comes to town. And Samuel goes through this anointing. And I do mean it. I've been reading this passage since I was a little boy. They taught it me in Sunday school. I read it in children's Bibles. And I've loved this passage. Every kid who's been the last one to be picked at PE loves this story. Remember those days when they lined you up against the wall and one kid had the football, so he was the captain, and the other kid was the biggest one, and it was like they'd just pick you off. And eventually, they'd get to the dregs. And some of you know what it felt like to be the dregs. It was when they said, I'll have him if you take him. (laughs) It was like, it's not even, I don't want him, I just, it's like a compensation. Every kid who's been picked last for a football team, knows how great this story is. Every family member that's been the final one and everybody else's future has been mapped out for the rest of them and you're the one that got left behind knows how this feels. Every adult who feels overlooked, marginalized, underappreciated, not thought about at all, knows how this feels. Eliab is brought in. And Eliab looks like a king. Eliab looks like someone that God wants to use. And Samuel, with his piercing blue eyes, says, that's not the one. And Abinadab comes in, and Samuel, with his piercing blue eyes, goes, no. And Shammah, no. And then the rest of the four that don't even have names, 
No, 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 no. And Jesse is scratching his head going, but these are my finest. And you get this brilliant, brilliant phrase. God speaks to Samuel and says, don't consider his appearance or his height. I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God sees what others miss. God sees what others find difficult to grasp. God wants to use people, but they have to be his people. God doesn't work in the same economy as the rest of us. So here's my question. Does God still do that sort of stuff? Is that the way God still is? Listen to Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus. The story is really clear. Jesse, no one in David's household thought David was significant enough to go and invite in when the prophet came. Nobody looked at David and went, it could be him. It's not even like, they didn't even think he was in the running. He wasn't even worth being invited in. But God saw something different. God had a plan for the nation and the world, and it involved giving someone a new job, someone that everybody else would have looked down on. And when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he's saying exactly the same thing. Same thing. God has a plan for the world, and he takes people like, and he looks at the people in Corinth, and he says, it's people like you. And you may not be seen to be the movers and shakers of the world, but God delights to choose what looks weak, what looks lowly, what looks overlookable, and say, I can use you. I chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. So the question becomes one, where you ask yourselves, is that what God's doing in pensions? So here's Joe, very vulnerably willing to tell us this morning, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. Does God use people like Joe in the pensions world because he says, I will take you and use you for my glory there? Or is it just church talk? When Paul was writing to Corinth, it wasn't church talk. He said, I see in you 
the fact that God has chosen you. And you might not feel like you're all together. And you might not feel like you've got it to, to all your ducks in a row. You might not feel the strongest. You might actually just come struggling and going, I'm really under the cosh. But God says, I chose you. I chose you. So that no one might boast before me. It's because of Christ that you're in me. So the big question is, the big question is, does God still do that? In a moment or two, we'll go back and we'll sing some worship songs and we'll take communion and there will be moments where we thank God for sending Jesus and we'll make our responses and who knows, we may well be open to the Spirit and God might speak to us individually or as a corporate body. Does God still do that? Here's the truth. God is less worried about our comfort than he is about his own kingdom. Your stress might not be a sign that you're in the wrong place. Your stress might be the sign that you're absolutely in the right place. Because the other thing about this story we read is how dangerous is it to be anointed a king when there is already a king? And what's going to happen to David next? Now, you might want to say, well, it's going to be a magical story. It's going to be brilliant. Because up till now, he's only been keeping sheep. But think through the story. What's it going to cost David? He's going to become an outlaw. He's going to be chased. His life's going to be in danger. At some stages, he's going to have to actually, just to survive, this is kind of like really bizarre, just to survive, he's going to have to pretend he's gone mental. He's going to pretend he's gone mad just so, so he can survive. He's going to lose his dignity. He's, he's, he put, he's in places where he's tempted to take decisions that he might not otherwise have taken because power has this danger of corrupting you. When David was anointed, his yes did not lead, lead to a comfortable life. When you say yes to God, it never does. It's worked out in the nitty-gritty of your own life. So what can help us? It can help when we recognize that God works in our weakness and with his purpose at the same time. There's a song that we used to sing that we don't sing anymore, and after I say this, probably we won't again. There's a song, an old song, that some of you will remember, and it probably blessed the socks off you, and I'm sorry if I'm going to destroy it. But do you remember the song that had the line, and I can't remember the proper line now. <laughs> yeah, all our weaknesses are stripped away. Lord, I come to you. Let my heart be changed, renewed. Did we do it a couple of weeks ago? I wasn't here. <laughs> and the line is, in you, all our, all our weaknesses are stripped away. I don't think it's true. I just don't think it's true. I don't think God's strength and our strength is suddenly invincibility. I don't think that's what happens to us. I don't think that's the promise, but I think that's what we want. 
But it's not the way God deals with us. It's in our weakness that we find the strength. He doesn't overcome our weakness in order that we might become strong. He doesn't gloss over our weakness so we might become strong. In our weakness, our acknowledged weakness, he says, there's my strength. In weakness, God's purpose is fulfilled. But this is not me and you, final point. This is not me and you just trying to do something harder. This passage of David being anointed into a difficult political situation where his life will be changed, God's purpose, he gets a new job. From that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came on David in power. Now, it's, it's, a, difficult, it's a difficult few words to, to translate, and so people use lots of ways to try and give you a sense of what's going on. But one other way of saying that would be the Spirit rushed upon David. I love it. The Spirit who comes and rushes upon me in my weakness when I might be overlooked. There's newness in Israel and it's caused not by oil but by the Spirit coming upon a young man. And it's the same today. When God wants something new, he pours out his spirit on weak people who are very aware of our weakness in jobs like pensions, in families, in homes, in school uh, rooms, uh, classrooms, working with families, wherever we find ourselves. And he says, actually, for the sake of what I want to do in the world, I want to use people like you. But here's my last thought. David has this brilliant, brilliant experience. And then what does he have to do? Go back to the sheep. <laughs> Go back to the sheep. And I reckon there were seven people in that room really insistent that he went back to the sheep. You might be king this afternoon, go back and look after the sheep. God may well have anointed you, but you don't escape the sheep. God might have put his hand upon you, but you go back to the boring place and the lonely place and the place where it just feels like drudgery. That's where you learn what it means to serve the purpose of God. So that when you stand in front of a big giant called Goliath and Goliath taunts you, you say to him, I've learned everything I need to learn about defeating you when I was out with sheep and when you're leading a people you describe yourself as a shepherd because you learnt it there this morning you come to church I come to church and there's kind of like just weights of responsibilities on our shoulders and the stress and it's so easy to say oh God if I were in the right place you'd just take all this away but actually he says this, in the place where you come with your weakness, my strength can be seen if you surrender the weakness. Not that it goes away, but that actually you acknowledge it and go, God, I can't really cope, to be honest. But in the midst of it, would your strength be seen for your purpose? For your purpose. It's a reminder of who, who we are, who God is, 
what God's doing and our part in it. Should we stand and pray? Father God, we pray that we would be people who are open to you and aware of what you're doing in our lives and not just wanting to uh, wriggle and squirm under the stress that we feel. Lord, we want to come and be aware that in our very self-evident weakness, your strength can be seen. And I suspect it's going to be different for each one of us, and I suspect it's not going to be what we expected, but Lord, we would pray that your spirit would rush upon us. Not that you make us invincible, that you make us people after your own hearts, people able to be used by you, people ready for your purpose. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray.